0: Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. Today I'm continuing on with my medieval fashion series but in this episode I'm going to discuss the fashion of the upper classes in the late medieval period. Now when I say the upper class in terms of the socio-political makeup, of the late medieval era this included royals clergymen knights those who lived and spent time at court as well as in some respects those attached to religion there are also many fascinating individuals that i will talk about in this episode who contributed to court life in england and europe and they are of course well documented and we have manuscripts paintings and woodcuts existing that depict the upper classes as well as those as i said partaking in religious life and that is an important way that we can track the fashions of the late Middle Ages, as we will find out. I know fashion is not usually something attributed to those of religious sex as well. Nuns and priests, for example... But in the Middle Ages, there are some of the only visual depicted images of people and groups and places. And so they fulfill an interesting role when it comes to retracing what people wore, how and when. Also, we need to remember just how important religious life, Christianity was in particular to the UK was to society in Europe at this time and so religious leaders and other religious individuals were seen as very very important in society and so wore highly decorated and specially designed pieces as we also saw in my last Patreon subscriber episode about embroidery. But I think the first place to start with this episode is the fashion of the royals especially the royal family in France and in England, as these are two of the most highly documented, powerful royal families of the late medieval times. In this case, I'm talking about the 12th century to the 14th century. Particularly by the 13th century, the church and the rulers in Europe had established a great deal of power and influence over their people to ensure that laws were obeyed. And so life on the outside, at least objectively, was more peaceful and settled. And so this meant that merchants began to travel safely again within Europe and outside of Europe and beyond. And so many goods, fabrics and textiles in particular found their way to markets throughout Europe. And these imported luxuries changed hands at huge fairs held around the country and particularly in northern France, where traders from the south brought Spanish leather, Italian and Asian silks and rare dyes that meant those from the North selling these items as well as fine and rare cloths and furs directly affected the development and use of fashions and fabrics in the late medieval period and the 13th century is a very important time in respects to how fashion changed, particularly for those with money. This meant that new styles appeared all over Europe at about the same time and greatly affected the fashions of the royals and the nobles in the 13th century just because of what was accessible to them and what was now seen as luxury goods meant that what was seen as luxury fashion changed. Now, the primary thing we have to remember when we're talking about fashion of the royals in medieval times is, as I said in the last two episodes, the importance of clothing in regards to social display and having control. And this is all tied closely with the idea of power and wealth. I've mentioned the distinction between the style of clothes between the classes in terms of cut and shape and style and this was not massively different but the distinctions we saw were in terms of the level of decoration and the materials used as well as the amount of time and energy and money that had gone into making the clothes and that is where we see the difference lie. It is in the jewels, the fabrics, the furs and so when we talk about royal fashion we're not really particularly talking about clothing that was different in shape not like we see in much later periods, but more in fabrics and designs. It became common for medieval kings, particularly, to wear quite elaborate dress, particularly during different ceremonies as well as when they were holding court. Royal kings would have worn a specific type of surcoat that was highly decorated and elevated, and this would have demonstrated their status when they were holding court or at events outside of their court. These were often embroidered with jewels and gold thread, and the girdle that made up the middle of the outfit would have been made of extremely expensive materials like velvet, and likely decorated with precious stones and gems as well as a variety of other ornaments depending on the location and the status. For example, King Louis of France, who ruled from 1226 until 1270, also known as Saint Louis, is pictured from illuminated manuscripts from the time, wearing camel hair coats, hats, trimmed with peacock feathers, highly decorated coats and long black silk cloaks. And he is a very important visual figure if we want to see the high decoration of the royal fashion, particularly for kings. And he was a king of France, a major superpower of the time in the late medieval period, particularly in the 13th century. But as I said, kings of the late medieval period would have mostly shown their status to others through their clothing, through the use of decoration. But also through the use of royal emblems, family, crests and regalia. And these would sort have of been stitched and decorated into tunits and girdles to show who you were and why you were important and again these would have been worn primarily at court and other ceremonies medieval kings would have also worn a great deal of jewelry and rings and bracelets were particularly popular these would have been designed specifically for that king they would have been highly decorated and quite sparkly because they would have been using precious materials like gold and would have been decorated with gems And because their clothing may have been more simple, it was items like bracelets and rings that would have set them apart from the common man or even just from other nobles. We also saw decorative daggers and swords being worn and weapons almost became an accessory as well. You would wear your rings, your bracelet and your sword and that would be your sparkling accessories to show just how rich and powerful you were and that you were the king. At special events and ceremonies kings would have also worn and carried specifically decorated jewelry or weapons to show their status that may have been designed especially for that event and that is you know, completely frivolous (laughs) and unnecessary, but it is used as a quick visual way to show status. And it's something we see used even today with Rolex watches and expensive shoes and tailored suits. Clothing is still used as a status piece. It is used to set yourself apart and to show people the minute they see you, who you are and why you're important. And it's something that we have always done and probably always will do. But it particularly started with kings and royals. Crowns were where this really took off. And slowly into the later medieval period, this developed into jewellery and regalia and emblems. Crowns as an accessory are actually really, really interesting when it comes to the decorated fashion of the medieval royals. It again was the main thing that set people apart as someone of importance. And now we see only the royals, and there's not many of them um, around the world, wearing crowns. But crowns and headdresses and tiaras wouldn't have been worn just by the royals. But the kings of England and France and Germany and the rest of Europe would have worn the most expensive, the most shining and the most highly decorated crowns. For example, in the 14th century, according to historic royal palaces, it was common to see kings wear a crown on their great helms so they could be readily recognised by their own soldiers on the battlefield even. Both Edward III of England and Robert the Bruce of Scotland seals feature them mounted with great helms with crowns. And this shows the crown being used as a visual representation of who you are and your power. But in fact, the oldest European crown jewels are the Iron Crown of Lombardy for the 9th century, which is just such a long time ago, (laughs) the Imperial Regalia from the 10th century, which is now held in Vienna, and the Hungarian Crown in Budapest from the 10th to the 11th century. The Bohemian Crown jewels are also an important piece of royal history, and these are from the 14th century. But the Bohemian Crown is the oldest surviving crown known to have once been in England, and again dates, as I said, from the 14th century. It is made of... Gold set with diamonds, rubies, emeralds, sapphire, enamel, as well as pearls. And it clocks in at 18 centimetres high. (laughs) It's also known the crown of Princess Blanche because it was worn by Princess Blanche of England, daughter of King Henry of England, on her marriage to Louis III in the 15th century. But it is just an incredible piece of medieval work. I implore you to have a look at an image of it. It is just... So highly decorated, the colours are wonderful and it's hundreds of years old at this point. So if it looks amazing now, you can't even imagine how shining it would have been to people at the time and how it would have set you aside if you were wearing this from the average man. As I said, a man would have been wearing a tunic, hose... Leather shoes and a cape. these would have been of expensive materials, but it was something like this, the crown that would have been the thing that made people realize who they were and why they were important. And this crown particularly, interestingly worn by a princess, I'll get into women's clothing in a little bit, is definitely a signal of that. And if I saw anybody wearing this out and about or at court or at some sort of special event, you would just know who they were. it's it serves its function very, very well. Interestingly, we also see some kings throughout the medieval period favouring the clothing styles of the Byzantine era. And even as early as the 1100s, it was quite popular for royal kings to wear clothing in the Byzantine style. And this was elaborate robes gathered at the waist and the hands would have been covered by a length of long fabric in cuffed style at the end. They would have, of course, been made of the best materials available at that time, sometimes even embroidered with gold thread they would have been bright in colour, using the new fashionable expensive dyes. And we see kings even of the 12th and 13th century favouring old-fashioned classical styles of a time that they didn't live. And this is also what set them aside as important individuals because they were wearing fashions depicted and seen as classic and actually that is something that we see the royals do today particularly the late queen elizabeth it's this idea of the classics never going out of style and styles from hundreds of years or even just 50 years previously being assumed to be higher class and more classic think of kate she wears very classic styles and she's always described as stylish and put together because she's wearing more mid-century clothing the queen as well particularly more when she was younger but she adopted a combination of 1950s dress with a more timeless classic silhouette and some was highly decorated some was more simple but it's interesting that the royals have been doing this for hundreds of hundreds of years and it is a simple way to set them apart from the common man it was only really in the 14th century that royal men's garments change and the classic tunic became close fitting with knee-length skirts instead of the doublet becoming popular and the over tunic was changed into something called a coat hardy which is a long garment with sleeves but essentially king's clothing as we see depicted in many images of kings in illuminated manuscripts and later woodcuts the clothing is simple and consists of very similar pieces as we see the common man wearing. But if you look, there are small changes that happen between the 12th, 13th and 14th century Even if they are much slower than we're used to today, it is things like shorter sleeves or shorter tunics or belts in different places, capes, clips, things like that will slowly change and the kings were no stranger to this. Their clothing would have just been made with better dyes, better materials as things became more expensive and more available, which is an interesting combination. (laughs) But that is what would have set the kings apart from everybody else. But... Speaking of queens, royal women and other noble women would have been exactly the same as their husbands and other royal upstanding men because their clothes too would have been fairly similar in cut and shape and style to the middle class and even the lower classes. But again, it would have been the embroidery, the decoration that would have set them apart as well as the materials. Women would have also favoured a version of the coat hardy and they would have worn this over a long close fitting dress known as a kirtle. And these clothes would have needed very adept tailoring skills. The fabrics would have most likely come from the East in trading. Eastern textiles and craftsmen had been admired in the West for a long, long time since the 11th century. And the fabrics that these clothing would have been made of, fabrics and textiles from the East cut in the same way as popular European clothing and styles would have been what set those with money apart from those without money because they would have worn linens and wools. Royal medieval queen's clothing would have also comprised of intricately embroidered dresses made of brocade or velvet and they also wore fitted bodice dresses with a V-shaped neckline and this had a full skirt. Collars and cuffs made of lace were also added to their attire in the late medieval period even if far into the fifteenth century. And as I said, it was all about setting yourself aside from the common woman or man and establishing yourself visually as different and more decorated. Even the more casual medieval queen's clothing was designed to maintain this difference between her and the rest of medieval women around Europe. But the daily clothing of the medieval queen would have made use of velvet, silk, and fur, but these would have not been quite as highly decorated as her court attire. The undergarments for a queen's clothing would have been made of white linen as well as silk, and these would have been breeches, hose and a chemise. Over the underskirt, a long gown would have been used that would have also been covered by the highly decorated, luxurious tunic dress. Sometimes embroidered lace and lace embroidered with gems would have been added on but sometimes it would have just been cuffing, it would have been edging and this would have been made with gold thread, lace or intertwined with gems again. It was, as I said, the wider choice of material such as fur and silk and velvet from the 13th century onwards that meant Queen's clothing became even more elaborate and decorated and it allowed hats too to become a staple. But I will detail more about the hats in a little while. Interestingly, normal people were not actually permitted to try and imitate royal clothing. And so the royals didn't really have much influence on the changes as medieval fashion. More they would just follow what was changing around them and adapt this as it went. Which is quite different to what we see hundreds of years later and even today. Royals, as well as noble women and other wealthy upper-class women, would have worn tunics and sleeveless dresses that reached the floor with linen undergarments just as peasant women did, but as I said, the material choice would have been very different. They would have also favoured more colour and made use of expensive dyes that peasant and common people didn't have access to. Once the sumptuary laws, as I spoke about in my very first introduction episode, came into place, it was only the Queen who could wear purple and gold-coloured dresses, and this is another way in which she would set herself aside. Speaking of colour, we also see many depictions of royal women, and men actually, in red velvet or even just red clothing. And very little do we see anybody else wearing red other than perhaps those attached to the church in some way. This is because, as according to Princeton University, red became associated in antiquity with war, wealth and power. And so into the medieval period, particularly into the late medieval times, red held both religious significance as the colour of the blood of Christ and the fires of hell and secular meaning as a symbol of love, glory and beauty. And wearing red was actually the exclusive right of the nobility. The red robes of kings, judges, cardinals, as well as executioners, showed their power over life, over death, and the queen too would have been favoured in red to show her strength and power as attached to the king. But speaking of headgear, this would have consisted of a few different types of hats. One was the barbette, which was a band of linen worn with a goffered fillet, which was a development of the plain linen headband and it was placed under the chin, the ends resting on the top of the head. And this was a sort of version of the coif. A full, loose cloak with ribbon ties to hold it together over the shoulders was then draped over the gown attached to the headgear. But a noble woman as well as a queen in the mid-1300s with a favoured fur-lined over-tunic called a pelisson. It had a large attached hood falling like a cape which could be buttoned up to the throat and the tiny buttons would have been attached to the barbette under the chin this would have also been worn with a decorated hairnet and this was later called a crespin or a crespinet and in the 1400s this developed to the hennin and this was as we know well the tall conical cap which had a floating veil and if you're dressing up as a medieval queen when you're a kid this is probably the type of hat that you buy at the dress-up store (laughs) conical hennins appear from about the mid 1400s onwards particularly only among aristocratic women, and later on it spread more widely, especially in a more truncated form. Many images of Maria Portinari of Bruges show her wearing a variety of henins, particularly one from when she was 14, which is now held at the Met, that depicts her dressed in the height of late 15th century fashion, with a long black hennin with a transparent veil and an elaborate jewel-studded necklace all attached. Another double portrait shows her dressed wearing a long black truncated henin that also has a transparent veil which falls around the back of her neck and rests on her shoulders. It is quite simple and this is likely so as not to distract from another decorated necklace she's wearing. Her costume or dress is mostly black or brown in her portraits and they usually have quite a wide, higher neckline, fur-lined hems on the sleeves. And her hair is also shaved back to achieve the high forehead and sculptural face look that was actually fashionable during this time for royal women or just noble women. And this was to accentuate the shape of the headwear. Another popular form of upper class female headwear is the escoffion. And this was worn throughout the 1200s all the way to the 1500s. It started and was most popular in European countries, particularly Germany and France. This was a headwear shaped into two horns on the top of the head and this was done by sewing or starching into a double horned shape with each horn sometimes being even up to a yard long and this is probably another iconic piece of medieval headgear that you recognize. The headpiece would have made out of a circular roll of thick material like wool, felt or silk and over the headdress gauze or silk was sometimes draped for weight distribution or even aesthetic purposes and this creates that you like horned shape. There are actually many depictions of medieval women, particularly royals, wearing an escoffion. One of these is Christine de Pizan, who I will go into detail on just a little bit later. However, the escoffion style was a sort of version of the henin, and in some contemporary written documents, the henin and the escoffion can get conflated. Often, the escoffion is referred to as a two horned or heart shaped henin, but the two are actually very different pieces of headwear with specific distinct designs and. fabrics. Escoffions particularly were much more highly decorated and would have been adorned with jewels with golden thread and often made in bright colours. However, hennins are usually depicted as a little more simple. The style of the Escoffion developed over time and eventually was given its own name because of its popularity and its distinct features. And eventually it would have been bound together by a network of golden thread and wire. And the intricate details were sewn on specifically by craftsmen or women and their job would have been to make highly decorated Escoffions because of how hard to make expensive and popular they became for the royals and noble women. Sometimes Escoffions could be so tall that they made the wearer stand about 11 to 12 feet in height and it was known for this it was known for being so tall and making the wearer extremely intimidating because as we know people in general were quite small particularly women they were much shorter than we know today on average about four foot ten or eleven and so it was a popular choice for those wanting to as i have said highlight their power and their strength and their importance i mean you walk into a room and you're wearing a (laughs) a headdress that is decorated with gold thread silk and jewels makes you 12 foot and is twice the size of your head It's going to make people look at you, I think. Now royalty and other nobility often wore robes that were so long that they covered their shoes. But they did actually wear shoes and these shoes were likely to be a type of small leather boot or leather sandal which would have been good for walking outdoors and these softer slippers sandals for indoors. One noble woman who likely wore all of these things and more was Eleanor de Montfort, Countess of Leicester from 1215 to 1275, who again, I'll go into detail more in a little bit. A popular type of shoe was a turn shoe. Now, unlike what Hollywood may want you to perceive, shoes were popular for almost anyone, particularly those of standing and particularly those with money. A turn shoe was a type of leather shoe that... It was named because it was put together inside out. When it was finished, it was turned right side out and it hide and it would hide the main seam between the sole and the toe. And this would apparently prolong the life of the shoe. And it would also stop moisture from leaking in through the seam. So actually, we've got a really careful, thoughtful piece of design here that would have been very practical to wear and probably very comfortable. I mean, there wouldn't have been uh, much support on the arch <laughs> without any sort of heel, but... I think it does really go against this idea that we have that people were just walking around barefoot all day. And these shoes would have been popular for the royals, but it would have been popular for everybody because people need to wear shoes, <laughs> you know. In the late medieval ages, turn shoes would have used one sole made of cowhide or bovine hide and one piece of goat hide or cowhide stitched together and again in the late middle ages additional elements were added like doubled soles cutouts and high decoration if you were more wealthy. Now we know all this through a variety of ways particularly through illuminated manuscripts, paintings, woodcuts, specifically paintings in the later times when dyes and paints developed to create the sort of paintings that we now know that weren't just the smaller illuminated manuscripts. But we also have things like funeral monuments and, and statues and these depict women and men, particularly the royals or those of religious sects, in the clothes that they would have chosen. An example of this is the grave of Eleanor de Aquitaine and she is a fascinating figure who I really just need to dedicate a whole section to, particularly when it comes to fashion. Now Eleanor of Aquitaine was perceived as and is now perceived as the most powerful woman in 12th century Europe. She was active in politics as a wife and mother of various kings. She was Queen Consort to Louis VII from 1137 to 52 and Henry II of England from 1152 to 1204. She was also known as a fashion icon of her day. She is depicted and written to have enjoyed dressing elegantly in fine clothes, often silk embroidery, and popularised gold and silver thread. And she really became a fashion icon in medieval Europe. She was also one of the wealthiest women in Europe and played an active role in government affairs. A key moment is her taking part in a plot against her husband, King Henry II, in 1173. But during her long life, she really made herself known... and now stands out a great deal between other medieval women and particularly other medieval queens. She had a lot of control over her life, and this is demonstrated by the fact that she married and took control of two powerful kings. The second was by her own choice. She was also the only woman to ever worn the crowns of both England and France. And according to Frank McLean in Lionheart and Lackland, Eleanor of Aquitaine had a dark complexion, black eyes, black hair, and a curvaceous figure that never ran to fat, even in old age. (laughs) I mean, that's an interesting quote, but it shows that she was seen as an adorned, beautiful woman, but also had a great deal of power. And her grave is a really interesting piece of contemporary evidence when it comes to fashions and clothing. We also see other visual depictions of her. Another is... A 14th century representation of Eleanor on her marriage to King Louis. And she is seen in a long flowing dress that is either a dark blue or a purple, reaching all the way to her toes. And she's also in a bright yellow or gold long sleeve tunic decorated with ermine fur and golden buttons. And she is wearing a sort of gilded tiara of sorts. And of course, this is her wedding, so she's going to be highly decorated. But because she was such an important figure at the time and queen twice over of two different countries, there are visual depictions of her and she is a really interesting royal queen to trace the popularity of fashions in different time periods. So do Google some images of her if you want to know more, um, particularly the wedding picture and her effigy tomb that I mentioned, because it's really interesting to see from a contemporary viewpoint what a royal woman would have been wearing. And there is also a wealthy countess, a woman named Eleanor de Montfort, who I also have to mention, she created a very important piece of contemporary evidence that is used today to trace some of the clothes owned and worn by those of the upper classes, particularly women of the late medieval period, which is now held at the British Library. According to research from the British Library, Eleanor de Montfort, Countess of Leicester and Pembroke, was one of the most significant figures of 13th century England. She was the youngest child of King John and Isabella of Angoulême, and sister of the future King Henry III. Eleanor became a key political player during the Second Barons' War and was a wealthy landowner and a skilful household administrator. She married William Marshall, 2nd Earl of Pembroke, at the young age of nine, but when he died in 1231, when Eleanor was only 16, she then took a vow of chastity, promising to remain unmarried for the rest of her life. Following William Marshall's death and once she was able to access her dower, which is a share of a man's money and property belonging to his widow after his death, Eleanor became a very young and very wealthy widow (laughs) now the household role of Eleanor de Montfort Countess of Leicester and Pembroke is a private account compiled by Eleanor's clerk in 1265 It contains something called a diet account, which is basically a day-to-day record of the expenses of food and provisions, together with a wardrobe journal. The diet account lists the location of the household, the various household departments, as well as the types and quantities of food and drink consumed each day by the countess, her close kin, her personnel, and sometimes by important visitors. But the wardrobe journal details expenditure on clothes, household furnishings, diverse goods, dyes and the expenses on messengers. It basically shows us that Eleanor managed one of the most significant noble households in 13th century England and that her efforts were crucial in supporting her then-husband's military efforts in the South. But it also details what would have been spent on clothes and what sort of clothes would have been bought. The fact that someone had a wardrobe journal is an extremely important piece of fashion evidence From the medieval times and is absolutely worth a look if you can decipher any of it (laughs) it's extremely hard to read but you can access the whole thing on the British Library's website at the moment it's called The Household Role of Eleanor de Montfort and it is such an important piece of contemporary evidence that details all of the things that I spoke about at the beginning of this episode the sort of fabrics that women were using and wearing the type of cuts the expenditure the dyes used and all those wonderful things, so do take a look. There is also an element of late medieval fashion that I want to touch on and that is the clothing of those within the religious orders or religious sects in England and Europe particularly England and France, because I've, I've touched on here, the cardinals, the Holy Roman Empire and other religious powers were seen as very high on the social food chain. And their fashion too demonstrated this much like we see for royals or nobles. Now I'm going to do so through telling the story of a specific women, woman who made their name within these religious guilds and whose images are depicted in art and on illuminated manuscripts due to her high respected position. And so it is then probably obvious that we see through these depictions what was worn by a woman within the religious world and it is quite fascinating. The woman in particular is Christine de Pizan but first let me give you a little background into the makeup of the church in the late medieval era in Europe and in the UK. Now during the middle ages the church throughout Europe was a daily presence from your birth to your death basically. In fact religion was so much a part of daily life that some people even said a certain number of prayers to decide how long to cook an egg. (laughs) The church was basically one of the most powerful forces in England, especially after England's conversion to Christianity began in 597, which initiated a long period of close contact with Rome. King Alfred, for example, visited Rome twice before the age of seven, seven, staying for a year the second time because letters, pilgrims and bishops would be going back and forth between England and Rome, the eternal city to develop their religious knowledge. According to Dr. Alex Bovey, the church was the single most dominant institution in medieval life, its influence pervading almost every aspect of people's lives. Its religious observances gave shape to the calendar, its sacramental rituals marked important moments in an individual's life, including baptism, confirmation, marriage, the Eucharist, penance, holy orders and the last rites, and its teachings underpinned mainstream beliefs about ethics, the meaning of life and the afterlife. And the headquarters of the Western Church was Rome. And for most of the medieval period, this was the chief residence of the Pope, who was seen as the successor of Saint Peter. Christ had appointed Peter chief apostle and had given him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And this was apparently inherited by his successors. So the Pope was and still is extremely important religious figure. And the success of the church as such a dominant force was mostly because of its highly developed organisation. And it developed basically a much more sophisticated system of law, economy and governance with the Pope at its head. And it basically gave people grounding in a time where people knew very little about the world. And that is what allowed it to become such a ruler of people's lives, particularly in the late medieval times, once Christianity was hundreds of years developed at this point. According to Encyclopedia.com, those who led a life associated with the church in all these forms, including the military orders, the religious orders, secular orders, and the parish church, wore costumes that were not nearly as subject to change of fashion as the costumes of the aristocracy, but were no less important. Clothing worn by those who served the Christian church were intended to symbolise the simplicity of life modelled by Jesus. The ruling that required all men and women in cloistered religious orders that is monks and nuns who lived apart from the world to wear habits, was established by a consensus of church officials several centuries after the founding of the Benedictine Order of Monks in 529. Canon 27 was a rule that was regulated in dress and this was initiated as early as the 4th Council of Constantinople in the 9th century. So you can see here that by the late medieval period, by the 12th century, this was highly developed and people had settled well into how to dress, dependent on which part of a religious sect you were in. A particular group that imitated the simplicity of the early church were the pilgrims, and these were found both on land and sea throughout Europe and the Middle East, as they made their way to sacred shrines for purposes of penance and the desire to travel God's world. Students, too, university students who were attached to the church were expected to wear a formal full-sleeved cope or cape, which was a bit smaller than a normal tunic, or sometimes a larger sleeveless overgarment that reached all the way to the feet, having a slit at the mid-front so the arms and hands could reach out. And this is what is still worn as your academic dress at a graduation ceremony today. So basically, our current graduation clothes, I'm actually looking at a picture of myself as I say this in my (laughs) master's graduation outfit, comes from the religious... Capaclausa Clausa, costume of the late medieval periods, who knew? <laughs> and actually, university dress codes were apparently based closely on the disciplinary decrees of clerical dress held under Pope Innocent III. There were even some forbidden items like red or green clothes, shoes without cut-out designs, curved or decorative hoods, swords or knives, or fancy belts, girdles, enhanced with gold or silver trim, trunk hose, puff sleeves, coloured leggings, or boots that might be seen beneath long garments. You also couldn't wear garments that were too short or too tightly fitted to the body, despite this being quite a fashionable way of dressing in the late 14th century for those of upper classes. And this attention to colour, fabric and cut showed that the wearer was too worldly and not sufficiently serious for university religious life. There were also particular garments worn by priests, and these were called vestments. They symbolise the glory of God and the church and such garments could be constructed of costly fabrics with a lot of ornamentation and dyed in colours established from long, long use. For example, when the priest celebrated Mass, still according to Encyclopedia.com, he wore six specialised garments, the amice, alb, girdle, maniple, stole and chaucible. The amice is a handkerchief-like fabric that covers the shoulders, the awl is a floor-length white gown with full long sleeves, the girdle of white tasseled cord belts, the alb at the waist, while the maniple, from the Latin word for hand, is another handkerchief-like cloth that is worn over the left forearm. The stole is a white knee-length scarf around the priest's necks, very much like a modern dress scarf. And the chasuble is worn over all of these garments. We also see the cope, which is a big outer decorated garment. And he would have also worn a pointed headdress called a mitre. So interestingly, a priest would have been wearing something highly decorated of different colours and many layers because of their position within royal religious society. And so I think that just tells you From a small point of view, there's so many other things I can talk about here because you could do a whole episode on religious fashion in the medieval period. But the church had a lot of influence over life, politics, social life, but particularly what you could wear, how you could wear it, what colours you could wear, depending on who you were. And so this is why Christine de Pizan is a really interesting individual. She was an Italian-born French poet and court writer for King Charles of France and several other French dukes. She was born in 1364 and died around 1430. She served as a court writer in medieval France after the death of her first husband. Her patrons included Louis I of Orleans, Philip the Bold of Burgundy and his son John the Fearless. She's considered to be one of the earliest feminist writers, and she wrote biographies, poetries, novels, literary, historical, philosophical, political, religious reviews, and analysed a lot of religious life. She wrote The Book of the City of Ladies and The Treasure of the City of Ladies, and these are her sort of well-known works. And these were even in print up until the 16th century. But she did all this to support herself and her family and she became a court writer and by 1393 she was writing love ballads which caught the attention of wealthy patrons within the courts and she became a prolific writer. But she also wrote a great deal of important religious scripts and religious analyses which is really really fascinating. Eventually she won the title of the first professional woman of letters in Europe and even though she was Venetian she was very nationalist in the fact that she was French and she loved France and that is where she spent most of her time. Eventually she became attached to the French royal family dedicating many of her ballads to its members including Isabeau of Bavaria, Louis I, Duke of Orleans and Marie de Berry. In 1402 she described Queen Isabeau as high excellent crowned Queen of of France, very redoubtable princess, powerful lady born at a lucky hour. But she was a very important figure in royal and religious life and chronicled the lives of the royals. She wrote poetry and many religious writings and because of how popular and prominent she was within court there are innumerable depictions of her in illuminated manuscripts and paintings and so she is a really fascinating female individual to focus on when we talk about what upper-class religious individuals were wearing in the late medieval periods particularly in the 14th and 15th century Many of these are held and can be found at the British Library and are available on their website so you can access these even if you can't access the British Library physically. She also illustrates herself into many of her works. One is Le Livre de Trois Virtues, probably said that wrong, which is I think sort of loosely translated to The Book of the Three Virtues. And in this illumination, she has depicted herself as kept awake from the rest of the three virtues. And in this, she is wearing a floor-length blue gown with a black undergarment of sleeves that's tight close to the body, reaching to her wrists, as well as what looks like a white Escoffion. But she is in bed, so it could just be a cap or a coif. But we see her wearing blue, which as we know, was a colour an expensive dye and a colour held only for those with power and money and influence. We also see an image depicting her presenting her book to Isabel of Bavaria, Queen of France, who I mentioned earlier. And we see in this Christine depicted in the same clothes, (laughs) but this time with a red long-sleeved undergarment. But here we also see the queen depicted visually and she is most definitely, as well as her ladies, wearing a huge escoffion with her hair shaved all the way back to the top of the crown. She is also wearing a floor-length red, highly decorated dress, collared and sleeve-lined with ermine fur, with a girdle reaching just underneath the bust of bright emerald green decorated with gold. Another is an illumination from the Book of the City of Ladies, and Christine is shown before the personifications of rectitude, reason and justice, depicted in her study, working alongside justice to build the City of Women, (laughs) Cité des Dames. And she again is depicted in the same blue tunic dress with long red undersleeves, but it is also the other women that we need to have a look at, the apparent virtues, rectitude, reason and justice, who are wearing gold crowns, collared, blue, red and white tunics, with, again, their hair shaved all the way back. And there are so many others that both depict Christine or created by Christine herself that show you what women of this time period in the upper classes would have been wearing, particularly those of the religious sects and the female virtues. We also see an image of Christine de Pizan presenting the treasure the treasure of the city of ladies, to Margaret of Burgundy. And in this, they are both wearing some chef's kiss version of late medieval fashion from the 1400s. They are both wearing Henin's tall pointed hats in different colours with long sheer pieces of silk or fabric over their faces, layered dresses in red, green and blue with different coloured girdles, gold thread and jewels. And this is, to me, a perfect example of, of being able to see exactly what upper-class women... Fashionable women, women attached to religion, which we know would have made you important in upper class, would have been wearing, particularly in the 15th century. So definitely have a look at this. It's available all over the internet, but particularly there's a really good quality version on Wikipedia. I know <laughs> we shouldn't go there, but it is really good for getting examples of these pictures because someone else has already curated all of these. But it's called Christine de Pizan Presenting the Treasure to Margaret of Burgundy. So definitely, definitely have a look at that because it gives you exactly what you want it to give. Now, I want to end with the Canterbury Tales. (laughs) I couldn't do an episode on medieval Europe without talking about the Canterbury Tales, but I'm sure you're asking, how does this attach to fashion in any way? In fact, it really does. And actually, there's a lot of information in the Canterbury Tales that tells us quite a lot about just simply the clothes that upper class people would have been wearing between the late 14th century into the 15th century. Now, if you don't know, The Canterbury Tales is a collection of 24 stories written in Middle English by someone called Geoffrey Chaucer between 1387 and the year 1400. The tales, which were written primarily in verse, are presented as a part of a storytelling contest by a group of pilgrims as they're travelling together from London to Canterbury, to visit the Shrine of St. Thomas Becket at Canterbury Cathedral. And Chaucer strongly uses the squire, the prioress and the knight, characters in the Canterbury Tales, clothing to symbolise how their personalities are reflected through the Canterbury Tales. And the clothes seem a reflection of belonging to a particular social circle. So whilst this is a work of fiction, it's still contemporary fiction. And as I said in my fictional brides episode, this can actually be a really fascinating way of tracing what people would have been wearing. And the awareness that people would have had around the clothing of social standing and the different types of clothes that people would have been wearing. But simply, they will just be describing what people would have been wearing on a day-to-day, much like if we were writing a book set in the year 2021. We were there, we knew what people were wearing, but in 2,000 years, that could be a really interesting piece of evidence. The description of the pilgrims in the prologue is a really interesting example of how Chaucer brings together... The representations of different social circles through their clothing, because he describes the pilgrims in lot of detail. And in fact, the description of each individual garment defines the character and the clothes symbolise their social standing and their personality. For example, there's a physician in the story and his love of money reveals itself to us in the fur and the rich silk of his clothing. The squire is known to be young and quite vain and he is depicted as wearing a floral brocade on his tunic and this is seen as quite vain and excessive. The merchant is also described, at least hinted, at having a forked beard. And so this is something really interesting as well, because a merchant would have been someone with a small amount of social standing. They would have been nowhere near noble or royal, but they would have had a fair amount of money because, as I mentioned, trade and travel was so popular. And so maybe a forked beard was a fashionable (laughs) type of attire for a merchant in the 15th century. The knight also wears a tunic made of coarse cloth and he wears a coat of mail, of course, as we expect from a knight. But it is rust stained because he's recently returned from apparently an expedition. The wife of Bath is also a really important character in the Canterbury Tales and she is wearing red which signifies her importance but also her nature for lust. It shows to us that she's not timid or shy, but also that she is an expert weaver and most likely decorated her clothes herself. She is quite sexually described and the fact that she's wearing red is really interesting because we found out that it was potentially true. We don't know, definitely, but potentially true that red was something worn only by royals. And we also see the royals in the imagery from Christina de Pizan's book, Wearing Red. So it's interesting in the Canterbury Tales that red is attached to lustfulness and sexuality, but also popular for queens who, you know, are probably not allowed to be lustful characters. <laughs> But nevertheless, read through the Canterbury Tales if you want some really, really interesting contemporary descriptions of clothing from the time. It's not super detailed, but it's more than you'll get from a lot of other places because clothing isn't something people really discussed a great deal because a lot of the writings would have been religious or political. And so that was seen as important at the time, obviously, political changes or religious scriptures. People weren't saying, and then on this day when I was writing this religious scripture, I wore this, you know. It's not something that people really did. So the Canterbury Tales is a really interesting piece of contemporary evidence just to have some actual descriptions of people wearing rich silks and furs and brocades and What sort of beards they had. (laughs) But I'm gonna end it there. And I've got one more episode left for you, which is all about knights in shining armor. I was actually gonna link it with this episode, and it was gonna just be one whole episode because knights were also pretty high in the social standing of the late medieval times. But there was just so much that I had to just dedicate it to one episode. And I think it's safe to say that knights are a really iconic visual image of the medieval times and it's their clothes, it's what they're wearing that is what makes them stand out. The helmets, the chain mail, those pointy metal boots. And so I thought I'd just have to dedicate a whole episode to it because there's actually a great deal of nuance in the clothing of the knights. And it changes depending on period, social standing, wealth. And I just wanted to get into that a little bit because... There's way more to it than I think we realise. But I'm going to end it there. I hope you've enjoyed these episodes so far. If you haven't already, do subscribe on Spotify and sign up to my Patreon. It's only 1.99 a month and you will get a whole extra episode a month on a much more specific, nuanced and sometimes more easygoing topic. The last one I did was all about tracing medieval myth through embroidery, which was really cool and fascinating. So if that's something you're interested in, do sign up for that because you're missing out if you don't. It was a good episode i hope we've had fun do look up images of christine de pizan she's a really fascinating visual individual but also she was just really cool i don't know why we haven't got a movie about her yet and i'll see you in the next one all for knights in shining armor stay fab everyone